Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. The text last week we explored this tragic scene in 1 Samuel 8 where Israel rejects God as king and asks Samuel to appoint for them a king so that they would be like the nations around them. The tragedy is that they already had a king in God. They had a king in Yahweh and by asking for another king they were they were abdicating their role. They were letting go of their role as being the distinct people of God for the sake of the world. And so we ended last week with a frustrated prophet and a grieved God. And the story turns from Samuel to this would-be king-elect, to the first king of Israel called Saul. And this week we're going to be in chapter 15, but I want to give us just a snapshot of what's happening between 9 and 14 before we move on. Chapter 9 introduces this would-be king-elect Saul with the following words. There was a, a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a, a, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And while this seems to be a benign bio, if you remember Hannah's song. Now, it's hard for me to remember what I preached last week, so I'm not going to hold anyone accountable here. But if you remember Hannah's song from about a month ago, one of the themes in Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2 was one of reversals, that God brings the, 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 the proud down and he exalts the humble. He brings low the proud. In the kingdom of God, what looks like a loss can very much be a win. What looks like a win looks is, may very well be a loss. The strong are actually the weak. The hungry are the ones who are satisfied. The poor are blessed. There's this theme of reversal. And so when we hear things like there's this guy called Saul and he comes from a, a, a family of wealth, we should already have some red flags going up. And then this other sort of like little, little uh, detail that he is taller than all Israel. He, he stands head and shoulders above all. Now, let me clue you into something that ancient Israelites were about five feet tall, okay? And so the guy's about my height, right? So it makes me feel kind of good to think that someone of my stature uh, would be seen as so st just standing above everyone. A giant back in that day would have been around 6'2 to 6'5. But regardless, regardless, relatively speaking, he, he's handsome, he's tall, he comes from a rich family. And this should already be sending some alarm bells for us. And in chapter 10, uh, we find Samuel anointing Saul. He brings some oil and he puts some oil on his forehead and pours it down his head. And this is a sign of God's blessing. In scripture, when you see anointing, it's a promise and a sign of God's blessing and commissioning to being set apart for a particular task. And this is what verse 6 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And in verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass on that day. So, so, so Saul's given the Spirit of God, he's given uh, uh, this unction, this anointing to do what he's being called to do. 
Now chapter 11 shows how Saul fulfills some of the warnings. If you remember when the people ask for a king, uh, uh, what, was Saul, what was Samuel's warning? He will take and he will take and he will take and he will take and he will take. And Saul is beginning to become this king in chapter 11. This is what he does. He goes out to war. He realizes he doesn't have enough men to fight the war. So this is what he does. He goes godfather on them. He takes an ox. He cuts it up into pieces. He sends it out into the land. And he says, if you don't follow me, this is what will happen to all of your oxen. This is what you'll find in your fields. And so already this king is beginning to show his true colors. And the story tells us that the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man and they win the battle and they want to kill Saul at this point, some of the people. But Samuel puts a stop to that rebellion. And in chapter 12, there's a speech from Samuel to the people of God, giving the history of the people of God, saying this basically, that regardless of your faithlessness, even when we go back all the way to the time in Egypt, hundreds of years ago, God was faithful. Regardless of the people's faithlessness, regardless of the ways that they've turned away from God, God continues to pursue God's people. And he goes, listen, that's just the way things are. That's just the way things have always been. And so in verse 14, he gives them some hope. He says, if you will fear the Lord and if you serve him and if you obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord all the days of your life, it will be well. Basically saying, listen, what the past is the past. This is just the way you've operated. But now... Let's make a fresh start. Do not turn away. Do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is God being gracious to them. And yet, Samuel reminds them, he reminds them that what you've done is a great and grave evil. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. That seems weird to me, to, that, that when we've done evil, God is, is reminding them and reminding, hey, do, yes, you've done evil, but don't be afraid. Do, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him with all your heart. Do not turn aside from empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And this is God's grace on full display. He loves his people despite our proclivity despite their proclivity to go against them he loves them and in chapter 13 chapter 13 begins a swift and tragic fall of the first king Saul Saul is coronated king one year after Samuel's speech and he reigned for two years and while getting ready for battle Saul offers uncertified and uh, uh, non-endorsed sacrifices in his attempt again in his superstition to try to secure the Lord's favor. And this is what happens in chapter 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. And for the remainder of chapters 13 and 14, Saul's half measures, his superstitious beliefs, his passing of the buck, his refusing to take responsibility for his actions, just like our first parents did in the garden, his brash and his unwise 
oaths and decision-making are on full display. He is clearly the king the people wanted, but the king that the people did not need. In the words of biblical scholar Bill T. Arnold, it says, in chapter 13, Saul lost his uh, prospects for an enduring royal dynasty. In chapter 14, he lost an opportunity to rout the Philistines as well as the respect of his own people. Now he loses the kingdom. The rest of 1 Samuel narrates the circumstances of his gradual decline and the rise of another to take his place. And this, this tragedy, this is where we arrive in chapter 15. And so before we get into chapter 15, I want you to pray with me uh, once more. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us your word. Help us this morning, Lord, to uh, come up under it to humble ourselves under the mighty and enduring word of God. Lord, help us to not believe the lie like Saul, that we are wiser than you. And so help us, Lord, in humility, come up under the word, and may you show us what you need to show us this morning. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people, and help me to remember the things that will be. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock, and my Redeemer. And the church said? Amen. And the church said? Amen. So Saul receives this divine mission in the first couple verses, and he's called to devote to destruction these Amalekites. And this is to be a complete destruction of all, of everything, top to bottom. And the Amalekites were a particularly heinous group of people. Again, scholar Bill T. Arnold is helpful when he writes this. The Amalekites were a semi-nomadic tribal group from the south and the southwest. Big up. They were the first people to oppose the Israelites after the Exodus and are portrayed as terrorists who preyed on weaker opponents, showing no regard for God. Because of their cowardly tactics on unsuspecting nations, Yahweh promised to extract vengeance against them in the future day when Israel was established in the land. Because of their opposition to God and his people early in the biblical history, the Amalekites are consistently portrayed in the Old Testament as vigorous enemies of Israel and Yahweh. And here Saul is called to be the instrument of God's judgment on the Amalekites. Now I want to acknowledge something. This sermon is not a sermon on, on whether this is right, on, on how we feel about this. I, I understand that this is going to rub up against our modern sensibilities. This is not going to sit very well for us. But as folks who are seeking to understand the text and be formed by the text rather than stand in judgment over it, uh, I just want to give us a, a couple um, a brief, brief statements on what is happening here. First thing is this, this idea of the ban, this devoting to destruction, as called, it was called the ban, was reserved for those who were diametrically and violently opposed to the purposes of God's redemption in the world. These folks would have been particularly heinous, ruthless, and violent. The second thing I want to say is that as modern people, we need to come to grips with something. That God owns the world. This is difficult for us to understand. In an age where we are told that we own ourselves, God is the exclusive owner of the world and has the right to do as he sees fit. And we must submit ourselves to that reality. But the third thing I want to say is that this ban in no way, shape, or form does it resemble or does it justify in any way, shape, or form any modern idea that we have of holy war or the crusades. But seven times in this text, it is mentioned that Saul was to lead a charge to completely annihilate the Amalekites and devote them to destruction. Saul heads out. 
he goes to the city of Amalek and he allows these Kenites, these other group of people to, uh, who were residing with them to escape this total destruction and he raises the city. And verse 7 says this, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The idea of the band, this devotion uh, of everything uh, within was totalizing. Everything must go. And yet we find Saul and his people discriminating between what they thought was good to devote to destruction and what wasn't. And what they did was they kept the spoils, something they should not have done. This wasn't for uh, the, the purpose of the ban of, of, this, uh, of the destruction, devoting to destruction was not so that the people of Israel would benefit from this. And Samuel confronts Saul on this point, and rather, listen, rather than repent, rather than apologize, rather than go and finish the mission, what Saul does is what every single one of us does. What, ev what, what Adam and Eve did in the garden is that he passes the buck. He makes excuses. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I, I, but I have obeyed the Lord. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone out on mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the people, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Yeah, you see, Saul, Saul, Saul explains, I, I did obey. I, 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 I did do what you called me to do, but it was, it was the people. It, it was them. Do, do you remember Adam in the garden when God confronts him and saying, where, where are you? It, it, was, it was the woman you gave me. And then Eve does the same thing. It wasn't, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent that was in the garden. And in the same breath with which he tries to explain away his disobedience, he shows exactly where he went wrong in sparing the life of the king Agag, and he brings him back with him. And this was a common practice. And this is what Saul was trying to do. Uh, oftentimes, uh, when tribes would defeat other tribes, they would take their military leader, their king, as a trophy. And they would parade them around in the city. And this is exactly what God did not want to happen. And yet, and yet, this is Saul. And not only does he do that, but he believes the lie that he knows better than God. Yahweh sent Saul, sent, sent Saul on a mission to devote everything to destruction, but he keeps the good stuff and then blames it on the people. And then to, to boot, to add insult to injury, he says, God, we, we did it for you. We did it for you. Verse 22, and Samuel said in response, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And this is the tragedy of this story. Saul was sent on a mission, a mission he failed, a mission he left 
half done, a mission he only partially fulfilled. And in God's eyes, listen, to have not fulfilled the mission in its entirety is to not have fulfilled it at all. And to do so willfully at that and then to deny the fact thereafter when he is confronted shows where Saul's heart really is. And the crux of the matter, this is where it all boils down for us, is in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. And, and finally, finally, we, we get something here from Saul. Although it looks, it looks like that at first blush. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Finally, at first blush, we get Saul admitting that he was in fact wrong because he feared the people. Saul is a king who is like many of us, if not every single one of us living in our age, who is addicted to the approval of others, to the voice of others, to our peers, to those who are over us, for those who are next to us, for those who have come before us. And it led Saul to willfully disobey the command of God. Rather than listening to the voice of God, he was listening to the voice of the people. He, he feared people's disapproval more than he feared the disapproval of God. He, he listened to the voice of the people more than he listened to the one of the creator. And as Samuel declares this now, he, he effectively declares that Saul's reign is effectively over. Even if it's going to last for a few more years, effectively, his reign is over. As Samuel goes to walk away from Saul, Saul grabs his robe and it tears. And this is Saul's, uh, Samuel's response. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Mm. For all intents and purposes, this is the end of the reign of Saul. Again, he'll remain in office for years, but he will never see Samuel again. And in the end, he will end up committing suicide. A tragic end to a tragic life. A life that turned out the way it did. Why? Well, this is the crux in verse 24. That his life turned out that way because he feared the voice of the people more than he feared the voice of God. And there's a warning for us here, is there not? This morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, there's a warning for us here. And the first lesson that we're invited, I'm going to give you three lessons. The first lesson we're invited to consider this morning is that we are invited to rethink our relationship to obedience. We have a very, listen, listen, if, and if you're not a believer here and you're just listening in, just hang on. But uh, I'm speaking of Christians here. We have a very funny relationship to obedience. We don't really know what to do with it. Do we need to obey? Will, will God love us less if we don't obey? Will he love us more if we do obey? Didn't Jesus obey on my behalf? And therefore, does it make my obedience obsolete? And this is what I want to make clear this morning, is that obedience is not an Old Testament concept for Old Testament believers. Obedience is absolutely essential for the follower of Jesus. And yet we must understand this very clearly. I, I cannot state this more strongly, that our obedience must come, must flow from love, not for love. 
Because this is how we think of obedience, that if I do the right things, and this is religion in a nutshell, that if I do the right things, if I say the right things, if I, if I uh, uh, abscond from, from the right things, if I don't do this, that, or the other, if I read scripture, and if I go to church, then God will accept me. And you must hear this, that that lie belongs in the pit of hell. There is nothing that we can do There's no level of obedience that we can achieve to get God to love us. That does not mean, though, that our obedience doesn't matter. Obedience must come, must flow from love, not for it. In fact, obedience is the way in which we display and we express our love for Jesus. This is what what the scriptures teach. This is what Jesus says. He says this in the Gospel of John. He says, if you love me, I mean, it can't get clearer than this. It it, it really can't. If you love me, you will do what I say. You will keep my commandments. And rather than setting obedience aside due to a deficient view of grace, a view of cheap grace, we understand that obedience of Jesus, it does not Jesus' obedience on our behalf does not cancel our invitation to obey. Listen, it makes it possible. Jesus' obedience does not cancel out your obedience as a disciple of Jesus. It unlocks it. It makes it possible. It gives us a new heart so that we want to obey. For the grace of God has appeared, Titus says, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Additionally, obedience is a part of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, it says this, And Jesus came excuse me, and said to them, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What? To do what? Teaching them to obey, observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. One more, Paul, a servant, of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And what Paul's about to do here, I mean, the book of Romans is just a masterpiece. What Paul is about to do in the next few verses is he's going to explain what exactly is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. What? What for? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. I think you're picking up what I'm putting down is that our obedience, while it does not earn us a lick of favor with God, it is an expression that we are loved and that we love God. And so we must rethink our relationship to obedience. The obedience of Jesus on our behalf does not cancel 
out our personal embodied obedience to the word of God. It makes it possible by grace. Our obedience does not earn God's love. It expresses it. And there are two ways, two patterns of faulty thinking that's displayed here in the story of Saul. The first thing is he believes that partial obedience is obedience. That's the first thing he believes. The second thing he believes is that that sacrifice is a substitute for obedience. Let me just say this clearly and very quickly. Now, partial obedience to what we know God is calling us to do is disobedience. Let me just, let me just say that very clearly. Knowing what we should do and doing some of it while having full knowledge of it is, in fact, disobedience. Saul did devote some of the Amalekites to destruction, but he spared what he thought was best. Saul did some of the will of God, but neglected to carry out his mission in full. And it was his insistence that what he did was right. His hard-heartedness, his pride that kept him from admitting his fault. And we do this all the time, don't we? We do this all the time, don't we? God calls you to have that difficult conversation to reconcile with someone that you've had beef with for a while, and you're still praying about it. Or you're, you're still collecting counsel by speaking to others about it. God calls you to enter into a special season of prayer, but you'd rather pick up a book about prayer than pray. God calls you to repent of that sin, but you go ahead and you nurse it and you psychologize it away. God calls you to sow into your church, and yet you withhold. We open up scripture. We see crystal clear calls. And we're more committed to figuring out ways where we are not under that than we are relying on the Spirit to empower us to do that. God's calling us to quit gossip, so we share prayer points instead. Right? We go halfway. I'm not gossiping about you. I'm just sharing with my brother or sister. It's kind of where you're at. We kind of obey. We, we sort of obey in our own way, but the, the, the story of Saul makes crystal clear that partial obedience is disobedience. Second, sacrifices are no substitute for obedience. This was Saul's rationale for why he did what he did. He kept some of the best things for the Lord. But let me remind you in verse 22 what he says, what Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. We substitute obedience to God's commands by doing things for him. We trade love for duty. Yes, Lord, I know you're calling me to forgive this person, but I'll just, I'll just serve a bit more at church. Yes, Lord, I know that you're calling me to put away pornography, but I'll just give a bit more extra money or time at church. Yes, Lord, I know you're calling me to stop sleeping with my fiance, but I'll just go on this short-term mission trip. I'll do whatever it takes to not obey, but let me just substitute my obedience with a bit more sacrifice. And this is what the Lord is telling us today, that these substitutes just won't cut it. Because substitutes are just that. Substitutes are not the thing. And so rather than obeying God, we get busy doing stuff for God, often stuff that we're not even called to do. And so the first invitation from our text today is to rethink 
our relationship to obedience, Jesus' obedience does not cancel out our obedience. It makes it possible. Partial obedience is disobedience and sacrifice is no substitute for our loving obedience. Our second lesson that we need to uh, uh, see in our text today is that we're invited to rethink the source of our disobedience. Remember, Saul disobeyed. Why? Because he feared the voice of the people. It wasn't that he didn't have all the facts. It wasn't that he misheard something. It wasn't that it got lost in translation. Saul had a failure of nerve to follow God in the face of the competing voices of the people. And how often is this a reality for us? That we fear the opinion of others more than we feel, fear what we already know God feels about us. We want to be seen in the right light. We want to be thought of well. We all have a little Michael Scott in us who famously said, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. <laughs> and that's us. I mean, that's me anyway. I, I, let, let me not throw you in there, but let me, let, me, let me throw myself in there. That we all have a little bit of Michael Scott in us. We all are addicted to what others think about us. We all are addicted to being liked and being accepted. And so we're invited to think about who in our lives, whether that be our spouse, our kids, our bosses, friends, peers, managers, who do you feel right? This is a real question for you. Don't shout it out. I'm not trying to air your dirty laundry, but who right now do you know you need the approval of? Who, who is it in your life that you fear? Where do we find ourselves engaging in practices we know are wrong so as to not rock the boat? Whose opinion of us matters the most? Who do we fear? Who do we hold in the highest esteem? Do we place the opinion of others in front of or higher or before God's opinion of us? And so this morning we're invited to rethink our relationship to obedience. We're invited to rethink the source of our obedience, but we're invited to rethink the power of our obedience. And when I say power, I'm thinking of power in two senses of the word. First, the power of our obedience comes from the gift of the Spirit. You must get this. We, 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 aren't, we don't have the power to obey, and yet the Lord gives us the Spirit of God. We within ourselves have no power to obey, not even a microscopic slither of the law of Christ, which is to love others. We are powerless and impotent apart from the empowering and dynamic grace of God. The power of our obedience. Listen to me clearly. I'm not asking you to go and just do something. The power of our obedience is Christ and Christ alone. Our obedience earns us nothing, but it is an expression. It is an extension of the obedience that was secured on my behalf, on our behalf. It is by grace that you have been saved. Listen, if you know Jesus here at all, you did nothing to earn that. It is a gift of grace. Paul goes on, he says, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Do you not know what dead means? Dead is flatlined, not responsive, lost, cold. And it was God's grace that came. And even now, what I'm praying for you now, and I'm going to pause to pray. This isn't a show. This is me pleading with you 
to consider Christ. I, I don't know where everyone is in this room, but if you are here and you don't know Jesus, my prayer for you is that you would know him, that the Spirit would blow new life into your heart, that even in the face of our own impotence, we gain a heart that wants to live for God. And so the power of our obedience comes from outside of us as a gift to us so that we can partner with God for the renewal of all things. That's the first way I think about power. But Christ, Christ is our power. But the second way I think about power is the result. What is, listen, what is possible now because you seek to obey Jesus? What becomes possible in the world when we organize our lives so that we would learn how to obey the law of Christ, which is what? To love God and love our neighbor. Listen, I need to close up here because I've gone way over time. So let me invite the band up. But use, let me just say this, that use are God's plan for the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as we are transformed from glory to glory into the image of the Son, as we take part in this transforming work by submitting ourselves to the Spirit, there's power in the world. We become this alternative community. We become people of light. We become people of hope. We become people of healing. Our obedience to the law of Christ, which is love, can now be the way that the kingdom breaks into our neighborhoods. Do you want to be a part of what God is doing to renew the world? The kingdom of God breaks into our neighborhoods, our homes, our workplaces, our sporting teams, our break rooms, our gyms, our relationships. Listen, salvation has come to you. Salvation transforms you. Grace changes you so that you would be a dynamic force in and a gift to the world. You are now God's representatives in the world. One John, I'll close with this, says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and listen, that his commandments are not burdensome. My goal here today, my goal through going through 1 and 2 Samuel, my goal through helping us understand what our relationship with obedience is, is not to place uh, 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 an additional law on you. The, the, the law of Christ that we would learn to love God and love others well is exactly what we were created for. This is for our freedom. This is not so that we would be hunkered down. But our spirit-enabled obedience has the power to unleash heaven on earth. And my prayer this morning, maybe this afternoon by this point, is that we may experience every commandment of God as a gift, as an invitation to life, that we would experience it as a, rather than a restriction of joy, which is how we often think about obedience and commandments, as restrictions of joy. Rather, they are passports to joy. They're, they're the ways in which we get to experience the life that we were actually created for. And even as Christians, I wonder why so often we fight against that. Why we fight so much against living in the ways of the kingdom. And this is all made possible because there was one who didn't obey only some of God's will, like King Saul, but one who followed God's will 
even all the way to the cross. When Jesus was in the Garden of the Gethsemane the night before, the night before he was executed brutally, he prayed. He said, may this cup pass from me. I, I don't, Jesus was, was sitting there bleeding drops of blood, sweating drops of blood, and praying to the Father, is there another way? And yet he followed the will of God all the way to the cross, even to his own death, so that we may live. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that there is nothing in high heaven or the deepest hell that can keep us from the love of God. That there is nothing now standing in our way. I pray that you would bind, Lord, the enemy. I pray that now there would be eyes opened to the gospel. That there would be hearts revived by grace. Lord, where, where I have misspoke, I pray that you would continue to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And I pray more than anything, Jesus, that you would do a work, that you would be beautiful here today, and that we would not be coerced, cajoled into obeying you out of fear, but that we would obey out of love, not for love, but from it. Help us to know who we are in Christ now. Help us to live as the people of God for the sake of the world, that folks may look and see a community that loves one another, a community that gives for one another, a community that forgives one another, a community where, where folks are so different, they, they shouldn't be together. And yet, this is the gospel. This is what the gospel does. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And the church said,